I, there's a kid, uh, just uh, got his first assignment uh, as, a, as a soldier. He was, uh, he was assigned to a military base, and uh, he was assigned to the front gate, main gate, and, um, this, and, and he was told there are going to be cars that come in, and each car that comes, each vehicle that comes in needs a sticker on the windshield. No sticker, they don't get to come in. You are here. You have a machine gun for a reason. This is a secure base. No cars without stickers. No vehicles without stickers. Sure, I can take care of that. And so it's his first day. He's excited. Cars are coming through. Vehicles are coming through. Trucks, different things. And about halfway through the day, um, a Humvee pulls up. No sticker. And a, uh, and a corporal is, um, is driving, but in the back is a general. I mean, super important guy. And, uh, and the... And the the brand new kid, first day on the job, says, hey, hey, I'm sorry, I can't, I can't let you guys in. I, I, was, I can't let anybody in without a sticker. And the general says, that doesn't apply to me. Don't worry about it. Corporal, drive on. And the kid said, no, 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 no. I'm telling you, I have orders. I can't let anybody in without a sticker. The general says, you don't even know who I am. Corporal, drive on. And the, and the kid walks back. And he gets next to the general, and he says, sir, I'm really sorry. I, I don't know how this works. Um, am I supposed to shoot you or him? <laughs> okay, stupid joke. But I wanted to talk today about following orders. What does it mean to follow orders? I don't, I'm not good at it. I'm not an order-following kind of a guy. I'm a little rebellious. I don't think I'd have made it like two days in the military. Um, but I'm, I'm intrigued by people who can follow orders without questioning. And I think it's a great, honestly, I think it's a great, amazing character trait, somebody who can follow orders without questioning. I mean, I, I think the only thing I have going for me if I was a soldier is if I was like, if it turned out like Hitler was in charge, I'd say, what are you doing? You know, but that's pretty much all I got. You got to have, it with soldiers, you got to have people who can follow orders. The problem is, in order to follow orders, you got you to have a, a measure of trust right? You have to trust the organization or the person giving the orders. And, um, and I, have a hard, I have a hard time with that. But because there are, there are certain things, especially in, in a military operation, especially in any kind of a, a, a place where, order, where following orders matters, there are times when information needs to be held closely. And so you do what you're told and you don't ask questions. Because you trust the people in charge that they know what's best. They have a larger perspective. They know what's going on. And they're going to tell you the right thing to do. It intrigues me, people who are like that, who are willing to be a part of the machine. And I'm so grateful that they do. Because otherwise you can't have a military. And I like our military. Because it protects me. It's weird. It, it requires trust. I, wanna, I wanted to start with that today, but right now um, we are in our third week of our series called How to Deal. How to Deal, and we talked the first week about anxiety, what it looks like to live with anxiety. Yesterday, or yesterday, last week, we talked about, um, we just got really, really real about depression. And today, I'm supposed to talk about suffering. Why in the world is, if there, and how many, let's be honest, we have all if we haven't asked the question ourselves, we have heard the question a hundred times. If there is a loving God, why is there suffering in this world? That's a good question. Anybody who pretends that's not a good question is lying. It's a good question. If there's a loving God, 
Why is there suffering in the world? And I got to be honest, I'm not going to, I'm not going to like completely peel the onion on that one. Um, it's, it's, that's a big question. I, I was uh, talking, I had breakfast with a couple of friends on uh, yesterday morning. And uh, my friend Les is, we, he was talking a little bit about this because he's been through it. He, he's lost a son. I can't imagine, there's nothing I can imagine that would make me uh, understand suffering or experience suffering more than losing a kid. I can't, and I'm, there, might, there are probably people in this room who've experienced that, and I can't even fathom it. But he was, he was talking about it, and he was, he was actually talking about um, people that he knows that, that, that want to pretend like if, you're, if, you, if you just do all the right things, then God is going to make your life good. That if you just say all the right things and say the right prayers, and if you're, if you're a good enough person, then life is not going to be filled with suffering. Which is, it doesn't take any time to, to look through the Word of God and say, that's bull. It doesn't take any time to get there. But, but there, that is such a prevalent, like, here's the, re- the reason why my kid didn't die in a car accident is because I prayed for him. You think I didn't pray for my kid? You know? Because you, are, are your prayers better than somebody else's prayers? This idea that suffering, that we don't have suffering if we're just living well or doing the right things or praying hard enough or have the right heart is bull. Man, I could do a whole, a whole sermon on just that point because it annoys me. Um, but he was talking about it and he said, and I bring it up right now because he said, he said, I got to the point, he lost his son and, in a car crash a bunch of years ago. And he said, I, I got to the point where I, where I realized the, the question of the why, it, it doesn't make sense. And it will never make sense. And, um, and it feels a little bit like, uh, like there are orders that I have to follow that I don't understand. That there, there's something going on that's need to know, and I don't need to know. And so I gotta, st- I gotta let. This is my friend saying, I gotta let go of the why, otherwise I, it'll just kill me. And I, it, it, it made me realize that understanding suffering takes some ability to follow orders. I don't like that. Can I just tell you that right now? That's not me. Understanding suffering takes some ability to follow orders. And so today, I'm not going to, like I said, we're not going to dig into the entirety of suffering and the reasons behind it. And I'm not, I, my plan is not to have you walk out of this place saying, yes, suffering's awesome. But I just, I want to talk about a couple of guys. I want to introduce you to a couple of guys and um, orders that they were given that are crazy, that they followed, that will teach us a little bit about suffering. Let's pray before we do. Father in heaven, you, um, you are worthy of our attention. Would you, would you teach us? We all have questions. Why me? I can't tell you. How many, well, you could tell me how many times I've said, why me? But God, um, I, I, just, I just pray that you'd just reveal something. Reveal a little truth to us today in Jesus' name. Amen. The two guys I want to talk to you about are Hosea and Isaiah. Um, we don't really talk about them together very often, but it's interesting that um, they both were prophets in Israel 
and one came right after the other. So Hosea came first, and then Isaiah came um, right after him. Now, Hosea is a weird dude. That's who we're going to start with. Hosea was a weird dude. Actually, maybe he wasn't as weird as the, the orders he was given made his life crazy weird. Here's the, here's the very beginning of, of Hosea's book where he talks about how God, what God called him to. Here's what it says. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea as a prophet, the Lord said to him, Go, marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. This is a weird set of orders. Hey, Hosea, I know you're like just starting out your life and you're excited. I want you to go and find a woman who will be unfaithful to you. And I don't just want you to marry her like, as, like we're just going to make a point and, everybody, and you know it's like a sham. No, no, no. I want you to marry her. I want you to fall in love with her. I want you to have children with her. And she will be unfaithful to you. It, am I wrong? That, that's a terrible thing to ask a guy to do. That's awful. And it's weird. It's just weird. I mean, we know there's a point. We'll get to a point, but it's just weird. And then the weird gets weirder because then God says, okay, you're going to have kids now. Now I'm going to name your kids for you. Seriously. And he says, here are the names of your kids. Your firstborn son, they have a son. And God says, here's the name of your firstborn son. His name is going to be Jezreel. Now, we don't think much about the word Jezreel. Not a big deal. Just a weird Hebrew name, right? Actually, it's a place. He's named after a place. But what's weird about it is that place is like the site of an awful, terrible massacre. It's, it's a site of a, of, a, of a time in the history of Israel where they did an awful thing before the Lord. And God wanted him to, to name his son Jezreel to remind the people of how terrible they are. It's like if somebody was a Jewish person and God called them to name their kid Auschwitz. I'm not kidding. That's what we're talking about. Hosea, I want you to go and marry a woman, fall in love with her. She will cheat on you your whole life. And then when you have kids, the first one is going to be named Auschwitz. Now, you're going to then have a daughter. And your daughter, now, I have two daughters. I love my daughters. And if there's anything I want in this world, I want for them to know that they are loved, right? I want them to know that they are loved by me. And God says to him, you're going to have a daughter, and I want you to name her not loved. I kid you not, the Hebrew version of not loved, unloved. I want you to name your daughter not loved because I no longer love my children of Israel. Seriously, and he does it. And then he has another kid, and he's named not my people. So can you imagine being Hosea's kid? Like, okay, you got a dad who is like so devoted to his cause that he has married this crazy woman that's your mom who runs out on him all the time. And then you go to junior high and your name is Auschwitz and not loved. What is your life like? I mean, can you imagine what it's like to be the kid of Hosea? This stuff is weird. But there is a point. There's a purpose to the pain. And what we find is that Hosea, Hosea is actually remembered. Well, we're still talking about him, aren't we? 
almost 3,000 years later, we're still talking about this guy. And I, I don't know if, it, uh, listen, if I was one of his kids, still not worth it. But God called him to it, and there was a purpose. And, and we know what the purpose was. God was, was speaking to his people, and he wanted a prophet who understood what God's emotional state was when he thought of his people. And so every time Hosea would speak of his wife, it was like God speaking of his people. Hosea, Hosea's wife, Gomer, she would go off with other lovers, and it would break his heart the way that God's people had broken his heart. And, um, and so the, the, he goes through a lot, of, a lot of discussion, a lot of pain, a lot of emotion surrounding all of those things. And, um, and then there comes a time when, when uh, God wants to teach Hosea a lesson about what it means, uh, why it is that it takes something awful to draw people back to God. And um, he wanted Hosea to, to learn to allow suffering in the person that he loved the most in order to turn her heart back to him. Because what happened is every time Hosea would make life good, she would get bored. And so this is, this is God speaking of his people, but teaching Hosea about the same thing. Here's what, it's, uh, here's what he says. He says, therefore, because she's been running all over, the all over the place, I will block her path. Talking, really talking about both, right? Both Gomer, the woman, and the children of Israel. Her is both of those. Therefore, God says, I will block her path with thorn bushes. She can't get out. I will wall her in so she cannot find her way. She will chase after her lovers but not catch them. She will look for them but not find them. Then she will say, I will go back to my husband as at first. For then I was better off than now. It's tough love, right? This is tough love. I'm, gonna make, I'm not going to make life easy for her to run, run off. And then, and then he turns soft. God turns, he, his tone changes. And he, and he turns soft in a way that's like winning her back. And he says this. He says, therefore, now I am going to allure her. I love that. I'm going to like woo her back. She's off. My people have gone astray. I'm going to allure her. How is he going to do it? I will lead her into the wilderness. I will lead. Does that sound good? If you're Gomer, do you like that idea? If you're the children of Israel, was the wilderness the good place? That was a terrible place. But God says, I will lead her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And he says, there, out in the wilderness, I will give her back her vineyards and will make the valley of Achor a door of hope. There she will respond as in the days of her youth, as in the day she came up out of Egypt. I'm going to take her out. It's going to be awful for a while, but there, in the wilderness, that's the thing. It's in the wilderness that God will speak tenderly to Israel. It's in the wilderness that he will make life better again for them. It's in the wilderness that Israel will once again respond to God as she did in the day she came up out of Egypt. I, 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 believe, I believe that one of, that the main lesson of the book of Hosea is that suffering takes us to the end of ourselves 
so that we're ready to turn back to God. Here's a guy who followed orders, crazy orders, to teach us this lesson. Suffering takes us to the end of ourselves, so we're ready to turn back, God, back to God. Now, um, in, our, in our story here, uh, God is using this story of Hosea and Gomer as, a, as an understanding of his relationship with Israel. But the truth is it goes a step farther because you and I in this story are Israel, Right? We're the ones who stray. We do. Some of us stray further than others. Some of us, I mean, it's not about promiscuity all the time, though sometimes it is. It's about straying. It's about finding other things that matter to us. And here's the thing. We ask these questions like, why is there suffering in the world? When a better question might be, why do we need suffering in order to turn our hearts back to God? Why is it that when everything's good, we ignore him, and when everything goes bad, that's when we turn our hearts back to him? Maybe a better question than why is there suffering than is why do we need suffering to turn our hearts toward God? I, uh, um, as a pastor, I've been to jail many times to visit people. To visit people. Uh, no, but I go, I'll, I'll go and I visit, and usually I know them, sometimes I don't. Um, but, you know, you go in, and there's the glass thing, and there's the telephone, and, um, and I've done it a bunch of times, but every single conversation is exactly the same. Can I tell you that? It, I can, it's like a script. I walk in, I pick up the phone, Eric, thank you so much for, for coming. Yeah, he's, and, and every time... This is it. I'm done. I want to turn my life over to God. Every single time. I want to turn my life over to God. And here's all what I'm going to do to turn my life over to God. And, um, and i got to be honest with you. I, I, I be as kind as, I, I'm as kind as I can be. And, I, and I'm hopeful that this is all the real deal. But you know what's going on in the back of my head. I've heard this. Of course you feel like this. There's nothing left. Everything is taken away. Of course it's time to turn your heart back to God. Of course, now it's time. I'm going to really pull myself together. Of course. It kind of feels like cheating to me. You know what I'm saying? And if, it's similar to me, to, uh, to people on the deathbed who make their sort of deathbed confessions and, and find their way to Jesus like at the very, very last minute. And they say, okay, now I want to. And, and then they do. And, and here's the thing. It feels like cheating. I know that's wrong. I know it's terrible, but it feels like cheating. And here's, here's my real problem with that. My real problem is that, there are, that Jesus told an entire parable that says, I'm an idiot for thinking that sounds like cheating. He told a whole parable about all different people who come to, to work at, this, at different times throughout the day, and then people come at the very last hour, and everybody gets the same reward. You remember that parable? And everybody's like, that's not fair. And Jesus says, shut up. Of course, it's, I, I do what I want. Okay, don't say shut up. That's the second time in a row. Don't bring your kids to church. There's Kids Works. It's a great place. <laughs> Sorry. That was, like a, that was a huge plug for Kids Works. No one's going to say that word in Kids Works, all right? Um, <clears throat> no, but, but that's the thing. Jesus is like, you think it's cheating? You're wrong. And secondly... Not only did Jesus say, I'm an idiot for thinking that way, but it also presupposes the idea 
that somehow it's a better life if I do everything my own way for 80 years and then turn my life over. It's like I, it's like I cheated the system because somehow I have this better life. Is that what we really believe? That's bull. Following Jesus gives me the life that I was created to have. It is not cheating the system because it, that presupposes it's a better life without Jesus, which is wrong. And so, I believe, I believe that God doesn't create our suffering. But in this broken world, he allows for it because suffering draws us back to him in ways that nothing else will. That's the story of Hosea and Gomer. When life is good, we don't need God. When life is terrible, all of a sudden God's right smack dab in the middle of our radar. All right, that's Hosea. Now, um, Hosea dies, and Isaiah kind of starts his ministry right as Hosea dies. Now, Isaiah is a different dude, and, um, and I want to kind of set up the, his orders. Uh, Hosea had weird orders, right? Marry promiscuous women, name your kids weird stuff, right? Isaiah had weird orders too, and I want to get you to the weird orders. Um, one day, Isaiah is in the temple, huge place. Don't picture like a building like this. Picture like, like a, a, a big arena, Right? That's the kind of size place we're talking about. He's in the place, and he has this vision. And it is a great vision. We don't have time to go through the whole vision. And he says, I saw the Lord, and he was seated on the throne. This vision. God is seated on his throne, and the train of his robe was so huge, it filled the entire arena, the entire temple. That's how big God was in this place. And he had this, this vision of an angel, and the angel came and, and touched him on the lips with coal, and we don't have time to talk about all that. You should read it. You should read about it, man. It's a great uh, moment. But then, right after all of that happened, Isaiah gets his orders. And that's what I want to talk about. Isaiah gets his orders, and God speaks these orders to him. And, and right in the middle of that, here's what it says. Isaiah says, Then I heard a voice the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, here am I, send me. He's like, yeah, give me my orders, God, I'm ready. Like he had this great experience. He's like, yes, this is gonna be awesome. God is huge. He's gonna be giving me some awesome orders. Tell me, God. And he said, here we go. Here's your orders. Go and tell this people, be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Hmm? And then I said, how long, God? And he answered, until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. I don't know what the rest of that is. Carefully called, forget that. Until everything is dead. Everyone is gone. So here's, the, here's how it all, all is. I mean, I'm going to put it in plain English. You ready? Here's your orders, Isaiah. You're going to speak my words. Isaiah's like, yeah, that's going to be awesome. And then no one is going to listen to you ever. Seriously. You're going to say what I want you to say, and no one is going to listen to you. He's like, what? How long, how, for how long? Yeah, until you die. Well, there's going to be like a good time, right? No, 
No, there's not. You are going to say what I want you to say over and over in different ways. People are going to mock you. They're not going to listen to you. You're going to write it all down. And then everybody's going to either die or be carted off into slavery. And then you're going to die and all of it will be over. Sound like good orders? Those are your orders, Isaiah. You're going to speak my word. No one will listen. Everybody will be carted off and then you'll die. Anybody interested? You want to sign up? Nobody? Nobody? It feels futile, right? Like, what, what are you talking about? Why on earth would I spend my life doing that? Well, it's not futile, and it's not futile for a bunch of reasons. And another one of those reasons is, again, we're reading about him. We're talking about him all over again. But it even goes a little bit deeper. And the reason it's not futile is that every time Isaiah would, would speak a warning to Israel, say, guys, if you don't turn around, if you don't change your ways, God's going God, to allow awful suffering to come your way. Every time he said it, and nobody listened, he also, every time, pointed people to their need for a Savior. You look through Isaiah over and over and over again. He is the prophet. I would say more often than anybody else, he is the prophet who foretold Jesus coming. And he did it over and over again. Every warning, every warning he gave God's people came with a moment where he would point to their need for a Savior. There's a bunch of them. Um, here's one of them. He said, uh, and he's, taught, he's, he's foretelling Jesus. He says, here is my servant who I'm, whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout, doesn't that sound like Jesus, or cry out, or raise his voice in the streets. It's amazing to me that there was so many people who didn't recognize Jesus for who he was, because they thought he was going to be a king, somebody who shouts, somebody who's loud, somebody who's, who's making a big deal. This He's not going to be any of that. He says, a bruised reed he will not break. That's a, I love that. It means like, it's like when you're walking through the woods. He is so light. He, he, he is so calm. He is so steady. A bruised reed. He won't even break a bruised reed. And a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. And just a, a, few, a couple of verses later, Isaiah said, talks about this the, the fact that he will come and, and he will give sight to the blind and, and free the oppressed and, and release the captives. And it's interesting because then, a few hundred years later, guess who quoted Isaiah? Jesus himself. When he was saying, this is who I am, he's, he actually went back and he quoted from what Isaiah himself wrote. Because Isaiah, every time, pointed to his Savior. And that is, that's a... Okay, so Isaiah had these weird orders, right? He lived his life with these weird orders, but he, um, he, wanted, he spoke a thing about suffering that I think is true. And the thing Isaiah spoke about suffering is that suffering points to our need for a Savior. Suffering points to our need for a Savior. Now, I got to tell you, in a church service, that sounds awesome. You know, it sounds really churchy. Like, you know, Jesus, of course, Suffering points to our need for Jesus. But here's what I will tell you. If you've got a sick kid and somebody were to walk up to you and say, hey, you're going through this because you need Jesus. Right? Does that sound like a good plan? That's terrible. Suffering points to our need for a savior. It's like, it feels calloused. 
It also feels kind of extreme and uncaring. Suffering, you know, like the answer to why suffering exists is that it's like some kind of marketing strategy for Jesus. That sounds awful. I'm, I'm on the side of people who think that's a terrible plan. I, I believe that suffering is way too high a price to pay to have some change in belief or religious experience. I, got, I am 100% on board with that. Suffering is way too high a price to pay if all we're getting at the end is some change in the way that we think or some um, religious experience. No. But, but if Jesus is who he says he is, if he is, if he really is the world-altering, life-changing center of all human history who can make a profound difference not only in this life but in the next life, then any price is worth paying. I know that, that doesn't make it less painful to hear. But if, if what we get out of suffering is a religious experience, forget it. I'm out. But if what we get out of suffering is a connection to the one who can change everything for us, then any price is worth paying. So those are our two guys, our two men, who followed orders, taught us a little bit of something about suffering. Here's what it is. Two reasons behind the suffering in this world. One, it draws us near to God like nothing else can. And two, it makes us aware of our need for a Savior. Doesn't make you feel any better, does it? Because it comes back to following orders. And I want to leave you with this. And it's something that Isaiah wrote. He wrote it like this. He said, he said, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he's near. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my way, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. I got to tell you, I don't have a way, some secret prayer to get out of your suffering. If, if I had that, I would have used it already, right? What I do know is that in the midst of suffering, I can either use the opportunity to rail against God, be angry at him, ask him why there's suffering in the world. Sometimes it makes me feel good. Or I can roll up my sleeves and try to learn to trust that the orders he's given me, the life I've got, are always right. Can I, this is a hard one. Am I, am I willing to take a look at the orders I've been given? I mean, Isaiah had weird orders. Hosea had weird orders. And that wasn't just like, hey, that was kind of, that was their whole life. They had hard lives. They knew what suffering meant. And they looked at their orders and they believed that their orders were right. I wonder, I wonder if we've got the willingness to take a look at our orders, at the life that we are given right here and right now, and say, this is exactly where God wants me for a purpose. Are we willing, are we willing to follow orders? 
believing that there is a bigger picture, believing that I'm on a need-to-know basis and I don't need to know everything. That's why it's called trust. His ways are higher. He knows more. I don't, I don't usually do well with that. We all know that. But he, it's because I want to understand. I want to understand the why behind things. I want to understand. But here's what I believe. If I only trust when I understand him, then it's not really trust, is it? The truth is, he's got a way bigger perspective than I do. And he understands things my brain could never even fathom. I have to stop allowing my distrust of others to impact my trust in God. He is the only one worthy of my blind faith. But he is worthy. Let's pray.